don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the Wheat Crook Podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And if you're enjoying the Wheat Crook Podcast, uh, help us out today. Share the Wheat Crook Podcast with one friend. We'd love to reach more people. Uh, write a review of us on your favorite podcast app, especially Apple. That really helps us helps us because people find us better. And if you really love the Wheat Crook Podcast, head over to our Patreon in the show notes and uh, show us some love there. That would be fantastic. Uh, another thing to know is we have some new features. If you're on iOS uh, with the Wheat Croak app, there's a daily review tool. Uh, early reviews are really great. It kind of creates a really great way to make a values-based daily review that's quick and automated at the end of the day. Stay close to your values. It's a great tool. Check it out if you have an iPhone. Uh, today, we have a fantastic conversation for you with Clay Risen, who I invited on the show because he writes for the New York Times obituaries page. So expect a lot of me geeking out about obituaries, but also some amazing stories. Uh, we talk about some of his favorite obits over the last year, and they're just, uh, they're if they weren't real and fact-checked and reported, they would be unbelievable, sort of the lives people have. And um, before we get into it, I'm going to plug something about uh, Clay's work that we didn't talk about on the show because we recorded it a couple months ago. Uh, but he's also an author and an historian, and he wrote this book uh, called The Crowded Hour about Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders kind of remaking Cuba through uh, sort of early imperialism, I guess you would say. Um the dawn of the American century is kind of what uh, Clay calls it. And in light of recent events in Afghanistan uh, and our most recent uh, adventures in nation building and sort of riding in and trying to remake countries in our own image, uh, it's so prescient and topical to look at the first example of Americans doing that. And I can't think of a country in the Western hemisphere that, uh, turned out less to America's liking than Cuba. So I think it's a really, really interesting uh, early historical record that's so topical now. So if you like this conversation about death and obituaries, also check out some of his other writing. He's written a few books on history and also uh, booze, spirits, which is really cool. So clearly uh, Clay Risen is uh, nothing short of a Renaissance man of many talents. And I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. So here goes. Clay Risen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. This is uh, it's a real pleasure. So you are an obituary reporter for the New York Times, uh, which of course is very topical for our podcast. Um, and you joined that role recently, right? Yeah, after the 2020 election, I was I was actually editing our campaign coverage and an opportunity came up to switch roles pretty dramatically from uh, from editing presidential coverage to uh, to the uh, the obit speed and to go from being an editor to a writer. And uh, I didn't have to think twice. Now, why is that? What it, what attracted you to um, obituary writing when you were and I think what a lot of people consider the, um, you know, uh, opinion editing or politics editing is a more um, 
like sought after career role? What what attracted you to this um, this beat? Yeah, well, you know, at the times there's a real uh, value placed in obituaries. First of all, uh, we do something we do them a little differently than most other papers. Uh, I'd say the Washington Post probably comes closest to doing what we do as well, which is really to report out and really dive into people's lives and to tell stories around them, not just sort of give their CV in a narrative form, but actually to tell tell a rich uh, three-dimensional tale around this person, whether they're someone famous or someone who uh, was forgotten or someone who might be, their contribution might be known, but they might not be. Uh, you know, this sort of interesting tales. And that to me was was such a compelling journalistic form. And especially since I, in my side career, I write books about uh, books of American history. You know, this is the closest I think that you get to regularly writing articles that are really pure history. Uh, now, some of the time political history, cultural history, uh, you know, could be into all sorts of history, but but fundamentally you're using the same sets of tools and the same analytical approach uh, that you would to uh, writing a, a piece of history as you do to obituaries, while at the same time constructing it as a piece of journalism. So, you know, for me, it really, uh, it really scratched a lot of different intellectual itches that I had. Yeah, that's an interesting point about history. They really are the probably in the paper the closest to a work of history of all the articles. Um, so I have some questions about the sort of the form of a New York Times obituary. Uh, starting with who gets one? Is there a sort of in your editorial meetings, uh, you know, sort of a rubric that you use for who is you know worthy of a New York Times obituary? Sure. Well, I would say all the obvious people are obvious choices, right? So if you are someone who has regularly appeared or even not regularly appeared on, uh, say, the front page of the New York Times or in uh, our cultural coverage, or, you know, I think there's a pretty clear test that a lot of people would, would agree with in terms of who who is an obvious choice. And the, the the tougher ones are kind of the the folks who maybe they're significant, maybe they're well-known regionally, uh, someone who's really famous in the Miami art scene, uh, but not so much in the national art scene, or, or a writer who had a big impact on the Pacific Northwest, but maybe not really outside of that. And those are people that we see as being very much... Uh, within our, our wheelhouse. I mean, that's the kind of person that we really seek to highlight because precisely because their contributions in their lifetimes might not be as appreciated as they should have been. At the same time, there are lots of people like that. And so uh, the decisions are often you know, pretty tough. And I'm fortunately not in that decision-making role. That's uh, the uh, the editor's job. And then they assign me uh, the 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 decisions. But, you know, I think, and I don't want to speak for them, but I think a lot of the choice comes down to people who, uh, whose stories, whose the richness of their stories is illuminating. Uh, you know, does someone have an, an interesting life? Does someone have a, a particularly poignant story? I wrote one piece about uh, a woman or one obituary 
about a woman who uh, was a she was had a law degree, uh, had gotten it sort of later in life. She was a uh, an editor for a legal journal in New Jersey, and she heard about a case of a young man who was she believed falsely accused of murder in in New York City, and she then spent most of her money, uh, and pretty much all her you know everything that she had aside from or her expenses and in all of her free time over well over a decade to to save this man's life and to get him out of jail and and to exonerate him and she was successful and she proved very clearly that uh, there were mistakes made that he was uh, obviously not guilty and you know this is a story that you could look at through a gimlet eye and say well you know what else did she do what you know this is one man but what a powerful story. What a compelling story. And I think that's the kind of thing that we ultimately want to bring out is these stories that, you know, for our readers, you know, they're not only going to be informative, but they're going to be enriching. And uh, that's, and, and, and a lot of that ends up being done through the telling. And so uh, once our editors make the decision, it's really us, up to us as reporters to to not just tell that story, uh, but actually give it the richness that it deserves. Yeah, I, I love stories like that of just interesting ways people uh, use their life well or um, commit to something extraordinary. And it's cool that um, the New York Times op ed, I'm sorry, obituary page makes room for some of those. And yeah, uh, I've got some questions about some of those that you, you sent me, actually. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, obits are a very particular form of writing. Um, what is always put in an obituary? What's usually left out? What Can you talk a, a little bit about what it's like to report these stories? Yeah, well, so this is, this is often the... Uh, the, the nuts and bolts difficulties of writing an obituary. So the obvious stuff... One of, one of the things I like about obituaries is that there's just, there's a, you know, it, it's in some ways, um, you know, a form of constrained writing. Uh, there are, uh, you're trying to tell a story, you're trying to tell a narrative, and you're trying to bring out certain themes. And yet, there is both a, a form that you have to follow. Uh, oftentimes, we have to uh, follow a pretty strictly defined uh, lead. Uh, you know, the beginning of the story. Uh, so it needs to have more or less in one or two sentences tell the significance of this person, uh, say it artfully and in a grabby way, but also say that they died and, and say what they died of and uh, give their age. Um, sometimes we can turn that around and use an anecdote uh, from their life to tell the story. That's There are certain reasons why we would do that and we don't overdo it. So most of the time we're following a pretty tight routine uh, at the top. And then there are certain information that we have to include. Uh, we have to talk about where they were born. We have to talk about uh, who their parents were, what their parents did, what who are their survivors. Uh, we have uh, a long checklist of questions and you know with fairly fairly minute pieces of personal data that we need to get. And so one of the first things you do as an obituaries reporter is to find out who is that person whether it's next of kin or, or a very, very close friend, who is the most reliable person you can go to to get that information. 
and it can't be secondhand. It can't be from some other obituary. It needs to be from a person, uh, unless you know there can be, I guess, certain extenuating circumstances. But but the idea is really just to get uh, to get that information and get that across. So that's sort of the backbone, and uh, that has to be there. But then everything else is kind of up to the writer to figure out. And, and this is where it gets difficult because you, you can tell a certain story, a certain narrative, and you can decide, well, there, you know, here are the themes, here are the points I want to pull out. Here's kind of the, the um, I don't want to say the case for this person, but here's kind of their tale. And, you know, it's not always the case that every little thing fits in. And, you know, I was, uh, and, and, and part of that is, is, is length. You know, there's um, uh, there was a, a, a sociologist. Uh, it was a um, quantitative sociologist at the University of Chicago and later at Berkeley that I wrote about, and he revolutionized the field of quantitative sociology uh, in the '50s and continued to work until a couple of years ago. He's really an, an amazing guy. Um, one of the things that is not necessarily germane to his uh, work in quantitative sociology is that he was really good friends with Sylvia Plath. And uh, his wife, uh, his first wife, had been Plath's roommate in college. And when he and his wife were in England, uh, he was on a fellowship. He and Plath and his wife and Ted Hughes uh, would hang out all the time. And he appears in a bunch of Plath's letters from that period. And, and later on. Now that's really cool, right? And it sort of gives him uh, an added dimension. Um, and I included that. Now, another thing is that he is uh, descended from uh, a very important rabbi uh, in, you know, seventh, uh, 18th century, uh, what, what is now Poland. And, you know, that was, that's, that's important. It wasn't important in his life. It's kind of a trivia piece. Uh, it's, I guess, kind of cool, but in terms of the story I was telling, it didn't really fit the narrative. And so, you know, and this, this is where it's tough and where I'm not, you know, I'm not writing an encyclopedia entry on this person and I do have a space constraint. And so I left that out. And was that the right decision? Was that, should I have included it? You know, perhaps you could argue different ways, uh, but I try to avoid uh, this kind of kitchen sink approach to someone's life where everything you could possibly say about this person goes into the article um, because no one's going to read that. Uh, what you want to do is you want to sit down and figure out, OK, what are what are the signal moments in this person's life? What are this? What are the things in this person's life that makes them stand out? And and that's not just my judgment, but it's also through interviews with people, family members, friends, you get a sense pretty quickly of what was this person like? And this is the one, maybe the hardest thing about writing obituaries is that you're essentially writing a profile without the, even the remote possibility of ever talking to this person. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of Frank Sinatra had a cold, uh, you know, Gay Talese's famous profile of Frank Sinatra where he was denied access to Frank Sinatra and he had to write this whole profile without actually talking to Frank Sinatra. You know, it's sort of that in miniature all the time. And so trying to figure out well, what what is the what is the the person in full without actually accessing that person um, 
that's that's the challenge and and trying to figure out well what is what are the parts of that person that maybe they're maybe they're part of that person but they don't tell you much about that person you know those are the things you have to decide whether to keep in or leave out right right it would be one thing if he dedicated his life to the same um sort of causes as that ancestor um yeah. and it's another if it's trivia that makes sense and that's yeah absolutely yeah no and, and that goes to all kinds of questions about identity and this is often and just to tack this on i mean this is something that often that comes up in in that i think about a lot is you know it's one thing to write a profile of somebody three a third person uh and you can do this very well but but there's 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 this yawning gap that because you can't you certainly can't interview that person uh let alone access that person i mean one of the things that I can't ever do and, and, and no writer can really do is, is fully understand that person's identity as they understand it. And, and it's, it's something that I think about a lot is how does that person see him or herself in the world? And the only evidence of that is through little scraps of paper or secondhand information. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the other things I really like about obituary writing is that it, it, that's a challenge all the time, whether you're writing or just how you how you engage with the world. Whenever you engage with somebody else, there's always that challenge of trying to understand who is that person? What does that person think of who they are? And and how does that reflect back on me or back on the con, conglomeration of, of people and, and networks that, I, that I'm embedded within? And, and, and on a daily basis, I, I confront this question. And it doesn't make me a better or worse obituary writer. It's just something that I think is, is kind of at the crux of what I do. And it's, it's uh, you know, intellectually, I find that very stimulating. So when you're getting to know someone's identity and trying to tell their story, do you feel pressure to speak well of the dead? I, I don't feel pressure to speak well of the dead. I feel pressure certainly to get it right. And, and that is to not speak ill of the dead where it's unnecessary. Um, you know, one of the things that I try not to do too much is get into kind of soft, soft impressions of somebody. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll interview people and uh, about a subject of an obituary and say, well, what was this person like? And, you know, too often the answer is, well, he was a really nice guy. He was really kind. He was funny. You know, or, well, he was really difficult. He was really, uh, you know, most of the time people don't even, people I'm interviewing, they don't speak too ill of the dead, but you get a sense of what someone was like. And I try really to avoid that on both sides because I don't think it adds a whole lot. Um, if you can communicate that through the story that you're telling, and if it's germane to the story you're telling, then I think it's incumbent on the reporter to get that in. So, uh, for example, I did a, an, an obituary for a photographer. Uh, he was a reporter and a photographer in Alabama in the 1960s. And he, uh, I promise that uh, he was uh he was um uh you know i promise that you have seen some of his photos uh, he was there at bloody sunday at the 
at the Pettus Bridge and during the Selma March. He was uh, all over Birmingham. Uh, and uh, so really significant in that way. But it turns out that he was also a an informant and uh, sort of a, a water carrier for the Birmingham police and for uh, various powers that be in Birmingham. And he was uh, working with the FBI. He was wiretapping civil rights leaders and doing things that certainly violated journalistic ethics. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, no doubt sort of cast him in a negative light in terms of his place in the history of civil rights. Um, and yet he's also responsible for all these photographs. And what was interesting, and I interviewed his, his daughter, I interviewed you know, other people who knew him, is that he saw himself as a good guy, that, that he was making certain, a good guy in a bad situation. He was making certain compromises in order to be as good a journalist as he could be. And, and ultimately, because he was being a good journalist, uh, he was helping the civil rights movement. And it was very hard to square that with some of the things he did. Uh, he heard stories about uh, assassination, one particular assassination attempt against Fred Shuttlesworth, who was one of the leaders in Birmingham. Uh, he kept that quiet. Um, how he justified those things is ultimately up, up to him and is sort of inaccessible, except that that's what he told the public and it's what he told uh, his daughter and other people. So how do you capture that? It's a very complex picture. And I think ultimately, you know, to me as a journalist and, and, uh, and as someone who's thought a lot about civil rights movement, I mean, I, I don't see a lot of room for him as a good guy in that story, uh, despite the fact that he, he did document a lot of uh, seminal moments. And so, so how do you present that? Well, you know, I think what I tried to do, and, and I don't know, you know, people can judge whether I did this or not, was was to paint him in exactly that way, right? There's a very easy way to tell that story that's very, very damning of him. And there's a way to tell it that's very, uh, you know, that, that's exculpatory, you know, that says, look, in the end, he, he did good things. And for me, the and this is going to be true of almost everybody, you know, is that the, the truth is somewhere in between. And that, you know, he was misguided, he was uh, deluded, he was maybe blinded by his ambition, um, he made bad choices. Um, but look, I mean, you know, you judge for yourself whether he was right in, in what he did, whether what his, his compromises were, were worthwhile. And so that's what I, when, when I get, when there's someone like that, that's kind of what I aim for. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, at least I haven't, and I haven't been doing this as long as some of my colleagues, so, you know, check back in a couple of years, but I have yet to really, I have yet to get an assignment where there's somebody who's really venal, really beyond the pale, uh, at least in their, their track record. Uh, most of the people I've dealt with who have a less than stellar life story, you know, they've been complicated figures. Uh, they've been people who were driven by ambition, people who maybe found themselves in over their head, people who uh, made a good decision that ended up complicating things down the line. And so for me, you know, it's, it's not about making them out to be good or bad people, but it's using that as an opportunity to tell a complicated story about people, because ultimately I think that's what 
most readers are going to identify with, whether they identify directly with them or whether they just understand that is, is very much uh, indicative of the human condition. Yeah, it sounds like, like you said at the beginning, a, a telling of, of history that this man sort of lived the very best and worst of his time, um, you know, was part of the brutal uh, treatment of African-Americans in Birmingham, but also part of journalistic integrity that told their story. Um, and it strikes me how different that is from today, where it's really hard to imagine someone who, you know, is a very like partisan um, uh, journalist to not see that one of their images or stories puts the other side in a positive light and still put it out. You know, we, we live in such times that are, um, I think there's less room for people to be that complicated sometimes. I, I suppose so. Although you could look at other situations and think, you know, and, and I, I imagine that there are people, let's say that worked in the Trump administration who really believed that what they were doing uh, for the government, uh, you know, for, uh, for the country in, in their eyes was, was worth it was was worth the work uh that they were doing for let's say a president that most of their friends most of the country uh, didn't deem worthy of of the office and and yet they may see themselves as as being good people trapped in a bad situation and and yet it's also very easy to demonize anyone who ever worked for trump and and there are certainly people who did who really probably don't deserve quarter but but i would imagine that you know and, and i don't want to sit here and name names but i think you know, there are definitely people who you you can look at them and say well yet yeah, did they make the good the right decision should they have quit uh why did they not quit where was it ambition that they masked as virtue was it uh something more complicated than that you know i think you're you're always going to find stories like that and and it's really a matter of deciding how you cast them because at the same time you can always say that everyone's complicated and you don't want to use that as an excuse not to tell a story that is fundamentally negative you know i mean i think you could probably say anybody in history you know stalin or hitler or mussolini were complicated men but at the end of the day they're evil men and and we can all agree on that uh, regardless of how many complications you can raise. So, you know, I think as, as an obituary writer, you also have to be very careful about not using that too much as an excuse. Uh, you know, I'm looking for the complicated story rather than coming out and saying, well, here's actually, you know, really the, the real story, which is that this person led a, a venal and, and uh, malicious life. So one question I have is, you know, often, especially with a bigger celebrity or world leader, you know, they die and their obituary is up 10 minutes later. And I imagine how that works is a lot of the reporting for the obituary is done ahead of time, as in before they die. And I'm wondering, do, do you work on some of those? Um, what's it like to sort of report someone's life before it's over? I do. So the way it works, and you, this is obvious when you look at the bylines, we have one reporter uh, he's been with, I think he is the longest tenured New York Times reporter, uh, Robert McFadden. And his job is only to write what we call advances. 
So he will write, uh, he wrote a beautiful advance for Chuck Yeager when Chuck Yeager died. Uh, he will do a lot of, a lot of names that you know will get the obit treatment uh, and that will require that kind of uh, in-depth reporting and also immediate publication, right? If uh, when Chuck Yeager died, everyone heard it, uh, heard about it, and it was an incumbent. It was incumbent on us to have an in-depth story on him as soon as possible. So we don't want to get caught unawares. So we have advances. We have we have a deep, deep, deep bench of advances. Now, what we'll also do is we will uh, the rest of us uh, will work on advances in our free time. And that can be a lot of fun because what we, the assignments, uh, we work them out with our editors and they're usually in fields that we all know. Um, you know, my field, my fields are, uh, you know, the, the writing of history, sort of historians and, and uh, uh, political history, uh, some, some literature, some foreign figures, uh, intellectual history, and uh, as well as uh, I also write a good bit about spirits. And so people in the distilling industry, uh, people in the you know, bartenders and folks like that. Uh, so these are people that, you know, if it's in my free time, I'll, I'll work on an advance for them. And it'll get filed away into our database. And uh, if and well, when that person passes away, it'll be brought out and touched up and details will be added based on, you know, why they died, where they died, and it'll be published. Now, we also have, uh, you know, at the New York Times, we have 1,400 journalists, and all of them know something about something. So uh, we will ask uh, our sports reporters to do advances on sports figures. We'll ask our classical music writers to write about figures in the classical music world and so on and so forth. And so that when we publish them, they're not just uh, this sort of, uh, they don't read as, as sort of um, brushes over someone's life, but they've actually, you know, really been thought over by experts in their field. And that's why our advances are often really the best pieces that we publish because they've been prepared with enough time to kind of chew out, you know, we, we were able not only to get the right person to write that obit, that obituary, but also really to spend some time with it. Uh, one of the, one of the interesting things to watch is sometimes usually we'll assign a, an advance uh, when someone is uh, toward the end of their career, maybe they've retired, maybe they just aren't as productive as they used to be. Uh, they're getting on their years. Uh, we're not necessarily waiting for someone to be on their deathbed. So sometimes what will happen is you'll have an obituary written for someone who might be, you know, let's say 75, and they'll live another 20, 25 years, perhaps. And when they finally pass away, the obituary writer will have also passed away. This happens occasionally, uh, where the obituary writer will, there'll be a little note appended that will say, you know, such and such, the author passed away in 2012. Uh, or that person will have retired themselves or, or whatever. But, uh, but it's this weird sort of, uh, you know, sort of incomplete little loop uh, within kind of the, the backstory of an obituary. But, uh, but it's, it's something that we spend a lot of time doing. Um, and, and, 
you know, and, and what it ends up meaning is that the work that we do as obituary writers on a daily basis is everyone who's not in that category, right? So people who pass away who do not have advances. And to me, those are sometimes the most interesting because, you know, there are people whose stories uh, need some digging in and some, some explicating in order to write it well. Hey, Ian, we built something new. You betcha we did. Our brand new addition to the We Croak app this year is a feature to our wonderful subscription on the iPhone called We Croak Daily Review. Now, this is a really fun tool where, um, for me at least, I put in some of my goals, things that are really meaningful for me that I want to accomplish on a day-to-day -day basis, such as volunteering or reaching out to friends and family. And uh, later in the day, um, every day, the app will send me a little notification and uh, remind me to, to check in with the app and say, hey, have you uh, accomplished these things that you set out to do? And I find it's a great way to hold myself accountable um, for not just uh, the things that I do, but also the goals that I set. Because um, We Croak Daily Review has a great feature where you can track the things that you do over time. So if I'm not living up to a certain goal or a certain aspiration, then I need to recalibrate that or recalibrate you know, my life in order to, to actually live up to that. So I've been really enjoying it. You know, how, have, uh, how have you been enjoying it, Hansa? Yeah, what I love about it is I can just pick the guiding statements that mean most to me. You know, my list is everything from, you know, quality time with a family to um, read something worth reading. You know, just try to get into that reading habit. That was a big part of um, getting into death mindfulness to begin with and making sure I'm doing it. Um, you know, to turn away from distractions. You know, what are the things that don't matter to me? Did I really do that? And what's beautiful about it is as I evolve and sort of work on myself and remember life is precious and short, you know, I get to amend this list and, um, and keep growing. And so I've really been enjoying it. It's uh, sort of taking uh, some practical philosophy tools I used to do on pen and paper onto a digital format so that I, I can actually make it like a daily practice rather than something like a once or twice a week practice. So uh, I, hope, I hope you all give it a try as well if you have an iPhone and want to be some of the first people to, to give it a go. This amazing tool now available in, the, in your pocket, so to speak. Oh, brilliant. Well, yes, please, please do give it a go and, and let us know. And uh, with that, let's get back to the wonderful conversation at hand. So one of the reasons I invited you on today is um, we are, well, at least I hope, emerging from uh, a historic moment of death of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I think nearly 600,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. And um, your uh, pages in the New York Times did a special series called Those We've Lost. Um, it just tells, I guess, the different standard is they may or may not have the kind of celebrity uh, or world leader life that would usually get an op-ed, but they they died of COVID-19. They're a part of this historic uh, and newsworthy event. And, you know, they're, the story of their lives um, is really noteworthy in some way. And you wrote a number of those. And I was wondering if you could start us out by just reading the first two graphs of the Barry Goldsmith 
obit you wrote? Do you have that handy? So the headline uh, that we went with, Barry Goldsmith, who escaped, dropped out, and came back, dies at 82. It begins, Svi Hirsch Goldschmidt planned to escape alone from the Jewish ghetto in Ivia, Poland, on New Year's Eve, 1942. News was spreading that the Nazis, who had forced the city's Jews into the ghetto a year earlier, were planning to liquidate it. But then his youngest son, Dov Bear, began to cry. He picked him up and ran into the forest, leaving his wife and two older children, Pesach and Kaya Pesha, behind. They were ultimately murdered. That one heartbreaking decision made possible a life, Dov's, that encompassed much of the modern American experience, from immigration and the promise of post-war abundance, through the tumult of the 1960s, to the search for meaning in a secular society, and finally, in the early 20th century, to the ravages of a pandemic. It was a life of struggle that ended with a modicum of silence, of solace. I mean, what a start to a life, um, an impossible choice. I'd love to know first how you found this story, this person. So, so we have, you know, what amounts to a hotline um, for stories like this, uh, for COVID stories, because as you said, these are not necessarily well-known people. Uh, Barry Goldschmidt, who Dove Bear uh, became Barry, uh, he was not a well-known person, despite his amazing life. And so we rely on everyday readers to submit names of people. And we have an editor whose job, you know, among other jobs, is, is to monitor that and to make decisions based on uh, what he sees. And, and he, he has other sources of, of information, but he monitors this inbox to see what kinds of names get submitted. So, uh, so Goldschmidt's daughter uh, submitted his story, and it struck us as one of those just too good to be true, or not too good, just too amazing to be true stories. And, you know, to go on, I mean, he, he, he and his father hit out and pull, they ended up uh, lining up or, or aligning with some uh, Jewish resistance fighters, and they survived in the, the Polish wilderness until the end of the war. He was in Italy for years as a refugee, came to the United States, I became kind of an all-American high school kid in, in Brooklyn, became an architect, became a really prominent architect within his generation. I mean, he was an up-and-coming architect. And then he just dropped out of society. He left his wife and family and moved out west and just kind of in the early 70s lived a life that a lot of people of his generation, the sort of baby boomers aspired to, to sort of drop out and become sort of spiritual. And he... Uh, ended up becoming a, a a kind of a you know a uh, I forget the name of it, but it was sort of this orthodox uh, hippie orthodox uh, Jew, and moved back to New York and um, and even tried to reconcile his life and and just lived this very complicated story. And so his daughter laid some of that out for us, and and I actually spent a good part of a month digging into this, and it was it was really interesting to try to find the uh to try to find supporting material i mean everything she told us was true but oftentimes you know people will tell stories and you'll want to just make sure that everything is that all the i's are dotted and the t's are crossed 
but uh but the more i dug into it the the more fascinating it was and there there's a certain point where i had to just stop and decide okay i i i have gone down enough rabbit holes i need to start start uh start writing this um he was involved with new age um earth architecture in in taos uh in new mexico there was a whole uh movement around uh building underground and and building sort of with rammed earth and things like that and he was uh he had settled out there and he was involved with this movement that ended up becoming a pretty significant uh part of american architectural history and he just sort of brushed up against it and and so i went down that rabbit hole for a little while trying to learn about uh radical architecture in early 70s new mexico so it, it's uh, and that's another just joy of obituary writing is just you, you you sort of tell this story you're telling the story of somebody and and it requires you to open a door and that door may just be full of riches and, and wealth of stories and 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 things that may not have anything to do with that writer or i mean with that with that uh subject but you as the writer want to know and, and ultimately you know, it, even if it doesn't make it into the story, it, it helps to have that in the back of your mind. And the thing with uh, with this Goldschmidt story is that there was so much of that. Uh, there was every every aspect of his story had this rich background to it, almost none of which made it into the uh, into the obituary. And yet, one of the reasons I love this obituary so much is just personally, I can read through it and I know all these stories. I know all this context, and it's so this. I, I don't know what it's like to read it, uh, to read it cold, but certainly for me, it, uh, it's incredibly powerful, uh, because I see all this stuff behind every sentence. No, no, it, it came, came through. And, um, this Barry Goldsmith was 82. And I think one of the things that I really struggled with during the COVID-19 pandemic is just how many Americans were dying and how hard it felt at least from where I was sitting to get people to um, care, <laughs> to put a finer point on it, to really like say that. And I, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and I just want to read you something and get your reaction as an uh, obit writer. Um, and as someone who did a series where a lot of the deaths were, um, you know, 70s plus, what, what, what you think. And this is from um, the book Natural Causes by the writer uh, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, and I hope I pronounced that right, where she writes about being, you know, a writer, you know, in her 70s plus. And she says, you know, I gradually came to realize that I was old enough to die, Um of which I'm not suggesting that each of us bears an expiration date, but um, uh, you know that basically she goes on and says, although there is no general editorial rule on these matters, it is usually sufficient when the deceased is in their 70s or older for the obituary writer to invoke natural causes. It is sad when anyone dies, but no one can consider the death of a septuagenarian tragic, and there will be no demand for an investigation. And then she goes on, once I realized I was old enough to die, uh, I decided that. And she makes, you know, a case for the life she wants to live as an older person for the rest of the book. And I was wondering what you thought about that statement. Um, 
are people ever quote unquote old enough to die? Um, how does that change the reporting of someone's life? Um, I would just love to get your reaction. Uh, it's tough, right? I mean, I, I think you can take two points of view, right? One is, I mean, what does it mean to be old enough to die? We're all, well, anyone can die at any age. And so strictly speaking, we're all old enough to die. And, and yet she's absolutely right that there's something tragic about someone who dies behind, before a certain age. 70, the your 70s, is kind of an interesting hinge point for that. And when we think about, when we at the obituary desk think about this question, that's really the, the, the point where, after which we start leaving out the cause of death if it's not necessary. Uh, you get, I'll do interviews with next of kin and ask what was the cause of death. And if it's someone who's 85, 95, more often than not, it will be, you know, he just stopped living, uh, he withered away. Uh, that is, and that's not someone trying to hide the truth. It's just the truth. And yet someone in their seventies, that usually doesn't happen. It's usually something else. And yet if someone dies in their seventies, as Eric said, we don't necessarily think of that as odd. And yet a few years younger than that, you know, if you're 65, 68, that is seen as too young to die, even though we all know that people die of all kinds of things in their 60s. And so, you know, it's, it, it is something that, I don't know, I think it, it, it raises, and I've I read that, that essay, and it's, it's very good about sort of raising these this sort of question about how we perceive mortality. And what, is it, what does it mean to be mortal? What does it mean to be near death? And especially when we're all different, uh, we can look at someone in their 70s and say, just on paper, well, he or she is still in the prime of their older age, right? They're not 80 yet. Uh, and we all know people who are well into their 80s who are spry and relatively quick on their feet. But you have to know the person individually. Uh, I also know a lot of people in their 70s who uh, have, are really not in good shape and who, if they died tomorrow, I would not really be all that surprised. So it's, it's, it, it's a tough thing to think about. And, and one of the things that when I think about, I mean, not to make this about me, but when I think about this job, and, uh, and what I do, one of the reasons why I enjoy doing it is because it forces me to think about these kinds of questions. And it does so in a very slow day-by-day -day way. I don't have any, any special insights into these questions, but I've also only been doing this for about seven months. And so what, what I do know is that over time, I think I... I I will be uh, forced to consider these kinds of questions more deeply. Um, you know, one of the things that is a little unique about, or a little unique, everything, unique about me is I'm, I'm relatively young to be writing obituaries. Most of the people who write obituaries for the Times, at least, are later in their career. Uh, they tend to be, uh, this might be their last assignment as a full-time reporter. 
And the reason for that is because we tend to look for people who have experienced death personally. Uh, maybe their parents have passed away, maybe siblings. Uh, they know what that's like. And, and also just generally, they know what life is like. They've been through and hopefully grappled with some of these questions. Uh, I am fortunate to not have been through that. My parents are still alive. Uh, my grandparents passed away, but I haven't, uh, haven't grappled with death in quite that way. And, and so I'm, I'm lucky. I'm always a little nervous that I'm not up to the task, having not had those experiences. But what I, what I can say is that it's something I think about all the time with this job. And, and, uh, and I don't think there are right answers to any of it. Um, you know, to your cure to kind of <laughs> a big circle back to your uh, original question. I don't think there's, there's any right answer to the question that Aaron Wright poses. You know, what is, what is the point where we can start to talk about someone's death as no longer tragic or sad? I don't know. Yeah. To me, at least reading your piece, it felt tragic that um, this man who'd lived such an incredible life um, had died of COVID-19. Um, well, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing about COVID, right? Is that it, it robbed people at any age of completing their life story. And, and yet, when you think about it, yeah, people die of all kinds of things all the time. And, and why is COVID any different? That's partly because it's this communal experience, right? We can look at it as cutting across the board. Uh, I wrote pieces about people who died of COVID in their 40s, people who died in their, you know, in their 30s, as well as people who died in their 80s and 90s. And, and none of it felt any, no, none of those deaths felt any less tragic because of the age. Yeah, they felt tragic because they were killed by this pandemic. And I mean, this is another thing that I, I think a lot about and I haven't really resolved. Why, why, is, why does that feel tragic when, let's say in a, any other year, uh, had they died of the common flu, we might not think that was tragic. It's, uh, and, yet, and yet that doesn't, I don't say that to discount the reality of how we feel about COVID. The next question I just wanted to contrast with was um, the obit you wrote for Lillian Blancas, who was a candidate for a judgeship uh, who died of COVID-19 at 47. Um, she was a Hispanic woman, I believe, and um, died before her election and then still got elected. And what was it like to write that one? That is by any measure a full-scale tragedy of, you know, a, a really a standout person. Um, having their life cut off early. That was, that was a real challenge for a lot of reasons. It was the second obituary that I wrote for the times. And so uh, the first one I wrote was, was pretty down the line. It was someone who uh, had played an important role in transatlantic diplomacy and, and was, you know, there were rich interview subjects and uh, a lot of material to build on this. This woman uh, was, you know, had, was at the start of her career. I mean, she was 47, a lawyer, but 
was someone that everyone said had a rich his a rich future ahead of her as, as a judge as a politician uh she was someone who was clearly going to leave her mark on uh she was in el paso uh on el paso politics and and possibly on on statewide politics on national politics you could imagine her 10 years from now as a u.s representative uh she was full of life and you know, by all accounts uh was someone who you know was just uh was was going places and and like you said, she had she'd actually won the won the first round of her election. And but because she didn't clear 50 percent, there was a runoff and she died during the runoff. Uh, she ended up winning. And what what was what was particularly sad was she was really this was a non uh, uh, nonpartisan election. And she was very good friends with the man that she was in the runoff with. And he had fully expected her to win in the first round. And, and I spoke with him and he was, he was very nice. And he, uh, he said, look, I, I actually don't want to win now. I don't, I, I don't want to be the guy who, who beats her in the runoff. I, I want her to win as a memorial to her. And, and obviously after that, we'll see what the, what the city decides as far as who replaces her. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and then talking to her family, you know, this was, this was a, a family of, uh, of immigrants, uh, even people who had, uh, both parents had, had moved to the United States from Mexico and, and built a family. And, and I could tell just through the conversations with her brothers and her friends that, that this was the last thing that anyone ever expected to happen. And, you know, I think that this is a life that you can definitely say was you know, both an amazing life and, and, a, and a tragic death, um, all the more so because it's really unclear where she got COVID. I mean, it wasn't like she was uh, a doctor working in a risky environment. It wasn't like she was taking risks herself. This was at a time, you know, in late 2020 when COVID was rampant and uh, it, uh, it struck all sorts of people. And so this one really hit home for me, I think partly because I was new to the job, but also because it was just such a, uh, something that you want to believe was, was, should have never happened. Uh, in some ways it's the most natural thing. Someone gets a disease and they die. Uh, that is what happens to most living creatures. And yet the particulars of this story made it just one of the hardest things that I've ever had to report. There, there was an aspect for me of just reading about her and where she came from. Um, you know, she was a woman, she was a minority, she was the children of immigrants that, you know, I was just thinking, my goodness, we need more judges like this. <laughs> it's such a tragedy. She's <laughs> yeah. dead. There's not enough. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe that's an unfair amount of pressure to put on one person, but uh was there an aspect of that in your reporting of just, you know, the loss of sort of someone who seemed rare and special? Oh, of course, of course. And, and, but what I will say though, too, is that that is something that comes through in, in every obituary, right. And particularly these lost, uh, the, the COVID obituaries, because they have a focus on, let's say more everyday people, um, 
you know, would we have written an obituary for Lillian Blancas had she not died of COVID? I, I don't know. But, uh, but there are a lot of people for whom we probably would not have written an obituary. And, and yet once you dig into their story, um, you know, so often it's, it's people who look, I mean, one way or the other, we lost something when they died. Uh, there was another, another man who was uh, also in Texas. He was an immigrant. He had um, grown up in Central America and come to the United States for medical school. And he was a, uh, a pul- emergency pulmonary uh, uh, physician in Houston. And so he was on the front lines working with COVID. And, and then he got COVID himself and died uh, and it was, uh, he was, is just a little older than, than Blancas. Um, and, and again, you hear that story and just think, my God, how, how tragic. And, and yet one of the things about his life that was, uh, maybe, I don't know, not, I don't want to say a silver lining because he needs, he should be alive, but that he knew the risks involved and he was fully uh, cognizant of what he was going into and he was willing to risk his life and ultimately to die, uh, because he was helping other people. And, you know, yes, it's tragic and, and, and just deeply, deeply sad that, that he passed away, but also, aren't you glad that people like that exist? And to know that people like that exist in the midst of all of that gives me hope. Yeah, that's that's beautifully said. One of the things that um, uh, really struck me reading um, your obit of Sandy Crisp, who um, uh, was, you know, a, a punk, an artist, um, a trans activist, uh, disabled, and her picture is hanging in the Louvre somewhere. Uh, is that it wasn't that long ago when I was growing up that obits like of hers would rarely be written. At least that's how it felt to me. Um, can you talk a little bit about the reporting for that one and what it felt like to report on Sandy Crisp's death of COVID-19? Yeah, that one was fascinating to me. Uh, that one was a little bit like the obituary for, for Barry Goldsmith in that there were, there were so many rabbit holes uh, for me to go down. Uh, she was, as you said, transgender punk, uh, a performer in the West Hollywood sort of drags, transgressive artist community. Uh, she was a muse for, uh, for photographers, for artists. She was an actress. She sort of had a a little boom in the late eighties appearing in, in a couple of mainstream films, but also a lot of avant-garde films. She appeared in a Marilyn Manson video. She was in a Dr. Dre video. And, and yet she also lived this life that was extreme in a lot of ways. She, as you said, she, she was, um, uh, born and, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, severely she had, um, she was, uh, didn't have use of her legs and, uh, she was uh, had limited use of of other parts of her body, and yet she she managed to live a full life. And it was 
it was fascinating to tell this story and in a real honor to tell it. It it also, I don't know about you, but you know, I think we're I know we're we're of similar age. I mean it it reminded me too of you know, sort of I grew up in Nashville, so far, far away from the West from West Hollywood. But, you know, there was a time in the early nineties when that world, that kind of punk transgressive all you know, alternative you know, world of uh, particularly on the West Coast, you know, had its moment, uh, really, really shaped uh, a part of kind of Gen X culture. And, and so I felt this kind of direct pipeline to her in that way. And, and you know, there were a lot of things that, uh, you know, underground films and, and, and alternative music and this, this kind of world that echoed for me, uh, even though I, you know, I grew up in a very different uh, environment. And so, uh, but you know the, uh, the the one of the things that was was interesting, and I've written a few obituaries of uh, uh, transgender people, and and it's it is it is not I don't want to say it's difficult to write about those. It's it's not, but it's uh, it's it's a reminder, and and to go back to what I talked about earlier, it's a reminder to be very cognizant of how so uh, and, and respectful of how someone identifies themselves rather than to try to impose an identity on them. And the difficulty with Crisp was that it really wasn't clear what her, how, how she, uh, let's say it was very clear that she did not have a fixed uh, gender identity. Uh, in the end, I think she primarily identified as, as a woman, um, but she nevertheless was, uh, someone who played with gender and, uh, and yet didn't really fit into certain, you know, you wouldn't call her genderqueer or, or, you know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be down with any of the terms that are out there. Uh, she was also, she was, she was very religious. Uh, she had grown up in a religious environment and, and her mother was very religious. And when she was with her mother, she would often, uh, she would often play the part of a man and, and identify as a man for her mother. And, and there were phases in her life when she sort of gravitated more toward that and then pulled back. And her, the way that she presented herself to her, her brother and to uh, her sister-in-law was more in line with that. And so it, depending on who I talked to, you know, friends of hers, family of hers, I got different slices of her identity. And ultimately, you know, it's, I, I think I, played it safe. I think I played it correctly to say, look, she, you know, she identified as a woman, but, you know, a full accounting of her life would be something that I think is kind of really pushed the boundaries of what you can put in print. I mean, not, not what's acceptable in print, but actually how do you capture that life in words? Uh, she kind of exploded the possibilities of, 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 of the, of the printed page of, of the written word, uh, her identity and her life was so complex. And, and beautiful in that way. And, and so, you know, I, I really hope that I did some amount of justice, uh, or let's say the least amount of injustice to her life in, in writing about her, because uh, she certainly deserved it. Yeah, amazing, amazing life. And, and really interesting in a lot of ways. She, you know, when you talk about a pioneer, she predated a lot of the uh, what have become wonderfully accepted terms about, you know, how, you know, trans as an identity emerged kind of 
uh, after she'd been on the scene for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so she was playing around with a lot of other ideas first. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and as a um, queer person myself, just seeing these people's lives in print in the New York Times means a lot that these stories are being told and being taken seriously uh, because they are important to a lot of people and uh, they didn't used to be told. And, um, and this might be, you know, something that is hard to answer, but, you know, I know when I was growing up, you know, I, it would be very unlikely to see an obit like of Sandy Crisp in the paper at all, let alone covered with, with justice and respect, or at least, you know, tried to. And just, I'm wondering how those conversations happen where um, people who have lived on the margins get to have, you know, the, but are heroes of some groups um, get to have that treatment. Like, does it just happen naturally as the culture changes or is there, uh, proactive conversations among editors or reporters at the New York Times to be more inclusive. How, how, do, how did, how does that um, standard change over time? If you have any ideas, yeah, I, I would say it's both. Uh, it's the former in that it feels perfectly natural to write an obituary for Sandy Crisp. Uh, she is someone who led a fascinating life, who touched. A lot of other people who was, uh, if not transformative in the different kind of sub genres of culture that she touched on, you know, was definitely present and 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 provides uh, an interesting window into those worlds and 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 uh, so so there's no question to me and and to my editors that she's somebody that we would want to cover and and we would do whether or not she died of COVID, but. There's also uh, an active conversation around these things because uh, I think there is an awareness, first of all, that we did not use to cover people from marginalized communities. And so we need to uh, do better. And so that starts with really looking for and, and pulling out those stories and being aware of what what would not have run in the past and how do we do that different now. And, and as you said, how, you know, how do we do it in the right way? And so, you know, one thing I do is, you know, when I say, for example, I, I've written uh, uh, several obituaries of, of transgender people and, you know, I'll, I'll get in touch with, uh, with uh, people I know in, in, you know, either transgender people themselves or, or you know, people from, uh, from Lambda Legal or, you know, people who can provide advice and guidance where I will say, you know, I, here's this, and I'll, you know, I'll lay out my questions and what is, what was, what is the appropriate way? What is the, the respectful way to, to answer a particular question I might have? Um, and, and, and they are always very helpful. And, and I think that that's, that's an important step. And, and oftentimes, you know, I, I, I think most of my colleagues would do the same thing, but, you know, I, there there can be a certain tendency as a journalist to say, "Well, I know how to do this. I don't want I don't want to show my cards to anybody. I don't want to call somebody up and say I don't know how to talk about this person. You tell me how to do my job." But I think that especially when we're talking about communities uh, that we historically have have excluded, it's incumbent on us not to just assume we know how to talk about them all of a sudden. And especially me as as a you know cisgender straight white guy, 
uh, you know, middle class professional. Um, you know, there are lots of communities I don't know how to talk about uh, in that respectful way. And, and not that you shouldn't do that in any type of journalism, but particularly with obituaries. You know, you are writing the story, uh, at least as far as the New York Times is concerned, about this person. And that's the draft of history that will be read about them uh, by anybody who goes to New York Times to learn their story. So you really have to get it right. And if you get it wrong, that's uh, that's a lot of weight. So, you know, and, and, and so, and, and again, I, this is not unique to me. This is, we all have this, uh, this understanding. And one of the things that we've done uh, as well, along, along with individual obituaries that we, that we highlight is we have a series that another, another editor oversees that uh, is, you know, essentially it's, it's the overlooked series and it goes back and, and, Right, you know, we write fresh obituaries about people who uh, we should have done, who uh, either you know had uh, amazing stories that maybe they were known, but we just didn't do an obituary for them, uh, or who had a story that was forgotten, and maybe it's understandable that we didn't do an obituary for them because their contributions were overlooked at the time. But from today's perspective, they definitely deserve um, that kind of treatment, and and that's been that's been wonderful, both as a uh, I think a, a very important corrective for us, uh, a very important sort of rejiggering of how we think about everything we do, but also just as a as a historical uh, as historical documentation, you know we are. If you think about the obituaries as a certain kind of historical text, uh, you know, or or historiography, you know, where we are writing down these stories uh, as part of history, you know, adding to that, going back and finding overlooked writers, overlooked activists, political figures, inventors, artists, um, you know, if nothing else, it has to be valued because it is enriching our understanding of the past. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the Overlooked series, and I encourage everyone to go Google it because there are some amazing pieces in there that are corrective and should have always had an obit. I remember reading some of them. Have you worked on any yourself, Clay? No, actually, I haven't done any of those. Um, it, uh, I was part of my, let's say, my hope with COVID uh, settling down a little is that uh, we'll you know, if we are lucky, uh, there will be fewer COVID uh, specific obituaries to write and more opportunities to do pieces for the, uh, for the Overlooked series. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just to keep you on, on for a few minutes longer, it's kind of controversial in some ways or has become so. I think there's a conservative campaign against, for example, the 1619 series, which the New York Times is a part sort of in, like, mm-hmm. Um, trying to do some correctives on how we told history in the past as being biased. And um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on that. Are, are people writing in angry about the Overlooked series uh, or is it still pretty, uh, these sort of I- ideas of how do we correct history, like they're, they're becoming part of our politics now. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Um, well, look, I mean, I think that, you know, there's there's sort of, 
a view of history that I think is uh, pervasive and easy to uh, easy to fall into, uh, which is, I'd say, not well. It's kind of the high school history, high school version of history, right? That there are there are events, there are people, there are ways that things happened, and you memorize that, and that's what it is, and that's just not history at all. Uh, obviously, there are events and people and uh, a way that they have occurred over time and, and lived over time, but how we interpret those is history. And we always interpret them through the lens of the present. Uh, Ken Burns says as sort of his, one of his mantras, you know, that history is, history is stories that we tell ourselves in the present about the past. I mangled that. He says it much more eloquently, but that's the point that uh, we can never do anything other than understand the history through our own lens. And so any project that sets out to say, let's look at history this way is no different than any other interpretation of history. And so whether or not you agree with the 1619 project, the idea that it's somehow radically distortive of history is, is I think, to, un, to misunderstand what history itself is as a study. Um, that being said, you know, we have not, and I, I actually, I should step back, I don't see the letters. Uh, my understanding is that we don't get a lot of pushback in that regard, and partly because where the 1619 Project makes an overarching claim about American history and 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 shapes a narrative according to that claim. That's not really what we're doing with the Overlooked series. You know, the Overlooked series is very uh, very much at the uh, the the micro everyday level. You know, we're saying this person has an interesting life. This person over here had an interesting life. Has uh, a life worth talking about. That's not really making a larger claim about history or making any taking any kind of ideological position or or really any kind of overarching interpretive position. It's simply saying this person deserves credit. Now, I'm sure that every once in a while we get some crank writing in and saying, well, you know, all you're doing is elevating people who deserve to be forgotten because you're politically correct. And <sighs> You know, there's really no answer to that. Uh, that's someone's point of view. Um, but uh, but I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You read the stories and you can't, I think, you can't help but agree that they are compelling and they are important. And and it hopefully what the Overlook series does, brick by brick, is point you in the direction of the kind of perspective that something overarching like the 1619 Project is trying to say you know, from a 30,000 foot view, which is look at all of these stories that we've overlooked in the past. You read through these. Doesn't that make you wonder about how you've been taught history? And doesn't that make you wonder about the stories you've been told about your history, your community, your country? And doesn't it make you think that there are other ways to tell those stories, whether it's through the lives of people uh, who live through them or through uh, the course of events. And I think, I would hope that that's the ultimate impact of something like the Overlooked series, is that it makes people realize that the history they've been taught is not necessarily the only history out there. It may not be an accurate history. I mean, there are many, there are many ways to look at history. 
And there are many ways to look at history that are, um, I don't want to say equally valid, but, you know, have reasonable arguments behind them for why that's a way to look at, say, American history. But hopefully the Overlooked series will subtly but but progressively push people to rethink maybe some of their assumptions about the the, the kind of uh, the notion that there's only one history and that the history they've been taught is the right history because there's only one wrong thing about all of this, which is that there is no one right way to look at history. There are multiple ways and they change over time. And ultimately they're defined by who we are now, not really who we were then. Well, thank you so much, Clay, for coming on our podcast and talking about uh, obituaries and uh, speaking of history, I know that you have written some books. Um, to lead us out, do you want to tell our writers uh, kind of a little bit about uh, where they can find some of your other writing? Sure. So I've written a, a couple of books uh, about history. Uh, most recently, I wrote a book called The Crowded Hour that was about uh, Theodore Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War, so the Rough Riders and... Uh, all that jazz and the invasion of Cuba and really trying to tell both a narrative about them. It's fascinating point in his life and fascinating characters, but also to try to make an argument about what, why that war, why that campaign, why the Rough Riders themselves were, were so important in American history. Uh, I wrote a history of the civil rights act, 1964 civil rights act and a history of the week after Martin Luther King was killed and the, violence in the streets and uh, the political tumult that resulted. I, on the side, also write about spirits, uh, whiskey in particular, and I do a good amount of journalism around that. But I've also written a few books, uh, guidebooks to American whiskey, a guidebook to single malt scotch. And I have a book coming out in the fall that is about Kentucky whiskey in particular. And hopefully people who once COVID uh, passes and, and uh, we feel um, more comfortable traveling around the country, hopefully people will go to Kentucky and maybe they'll pick up my book as a way to help them navigate, uh, navigate everything that those distilleries have to offer. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, have a great rest of your day. Well, thanks for having me. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Clay Risen, for joining us for this awesome episode. We'll have a link to his website in the show notes. From there, you can access his books, his New York Times articles. We hope you are enjoying our latest season of the We Croak podcast. We'll have our next episode in two weeks. And until then, we'll see you next time.